welcome to a radical discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damonosophy 2.0 with your host, Paul Frederick. If you dug the Black Flame Taro, then you've got to have the Black Flame Taro book. The Black Flame Taro, an invocation of fire guidebook for the Black Flame Taro deck, written by Jennifer and Paul McAtee, with a foreword by Don Webb. The Black Flame Taro is a magical working and a powerful tool for divination. This book explores different ways of working with the deck and also discusses the origins, ideas, and inspiration that have contributed to its creation. For people interested in the Taro and left-hand path ideas, this book will help you maximize your personal growth, connect with your inner reality, and offer practical tips and techniques for problem solving and making decisions in everyday situations. Visit lulu.com and search Black Flame Taro now to get your copy. You will not regret it. In continuing with our discussion of the three things that you can do with the Black Flame, I'd like to share with you the Cosmic Garden Hose Allegory. So, in, in discussing the nature of creation, we can use the metaphor of a gardener. So, imagine watering your lawn with a garden hose. Very simple. The stream leaves the spout strong and unified, but of course, the further it gets out, the, the stream disperses and falls apart, spreads out into little droplets. And some of it falls on, on grass, some of it gets on leaves, some of the water sinks into the earth. And also there's different forms of organic life out there in addition to, to plants. There's also you know, snails and bugs and all sorts of little critters out there, microbes. Some of them might appreciate that water coming down on them. Others, it could be catastrophic. Your water lands on an anthill, that's a big pain in the ass for them. It's another day's work. But they all need water. All forms of organic life need it. But they need it in different ways, in different amounts, and they have different methods for absorbing it. Now, imagine a similar stream from a great cosmic garden hose. I say the source is somewhere far away from as far from planet Earth. And so you know from, from your experience in the garden that what comes out near the source of the stream is all unified from your point of view. It's all water. It's all the same thing. But as it spreads out and gets further away from the source, it disperses and it becomes 
uh, and it becomes different things to different beings. So imagine imagine this again as a as a great as a cosmic garden hose, and 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 the, you say the source is far far away from us, and the stream as it moves throughout the cosmos, and eventually arrives at planet Earth. There's this dispersal has taken place. It's it's dropletized. It's it's mystified. And there's a dispersal such as you might see with any conventional stream. Closer to the source, the stream is very strong. But by the time it reaches us here in our little corner of the universe, it is dispersed, faded, and inconsistent. Now, this principle takes place on different levels. If we're talking about a cosmic substance, if we're talking about a super substantial substance, we're talking about a source that maybe is not, you know, technically on planet Earth in our immediate vicinity. And then there's a dispersal that takes place from there. And then we're talking about places on planet Earth where it's collected, where there's, there's certain places where it's collected because the people want it there and so they collect it. And so then as it moves for, further from, from that source, again, there's like another dispersal. So consider, look back at the, uh, at the garden hose analogy. Not all forms of organic life happen to be in the right place at the right time where the droplets are falling. And again, different forms of life have different reactions to it. And they have different ways of consuming it, of digesting it, integrating it, and regurgitating it, expressing it, casting it back out. Now, at the very least, those who have found within themselves the wish to become something, to become something more, and those who've heard the ideas about this can say that they were actually born in the right place at the right time because some of the ideas are still around. So one of these the one way this idea gets represented is in the seal of set which if you haven't seen it, it's the image of set that has uh, some Egyptian hieroglyphs going around it which translate as let my great nobles be brought to me and here you have the idea that not everyone is going to hear that message. There's some people who are going to seek and they're going to find it. Then there's other people who will seek but never find. And of course, then there's uh, many, many, many others who never seek. Many are in the right place but unable to receive. Or they can receive only certain filtered aspects. And part of this has to do with preparation, with how they've prepared themselves, how they prepared themselves to be able to receive. And, and there's a lot tied up in this. What have you done to prepare yourself? Could it be that a huge part of 
initiation, what we call self-initiation, is really just a matter of preparing the self, preparation for this greater transformation or this greater receiving of something uh, that is yet to come. So everyone knows people who are unable to receive and will never prepare and they're never going to hear. Even if you beat them over the head with it, they're not going to hear it. And we're surrounded by people like this in ordinary life. And this is what Gurdjieff talked about when he said that humanity is in a state of relative sleep. And there's actually a scientific um, you know, validation of this, of this idea when they find that, you know, so there's a number of different, uh, brain ways. If you go and you check out on, uh, the, all of the current knowledge on this about brain waves, but there are basically two broad categories of brain waves, alpha and beta. Beta representing wakefulness, and really that means intensive thought and reasoning, like heavy reasoning, like like dianoia uh, in, in, in Plato's pyramid of thought. Like you're really thinking hard and examining an issue. And then there's alpha waves, and it's like this includes uh, you know relaxation. And it includes sleep, and then there's other levels of sleep in there. But the point is, is that you're basically got alpha waves while you're sleeping at night, and you basically got something um, in the same neighborhood when you are doing most of the stuff during the day, like walking around, doing things, talking to people, working, getting paid to be at work. Um, a lot of the times, you're just technically, scientifically, you're closer to being asleep than you are. Uh, to being wakeful in the thoughtful, rational, uh, dialogue, dianoia sense of the word. So this is what Gurdjieff called the terror of the situation when you realize that not only most of humanity really is just asleep all the time, but you are yourself. Even though you might be thinking right now, I'm wakeful and I want to be wakeful, the reality is, is that most of the time you're not you're just not. And there's a lot of experiments out there that you can do to uh, prove this to yourself. But here's one. Go when, Next time you're at work, now if you, if you have a job, and I hope you do, next time you're at work, write yourself a little note on your desk or wherever you come in, wherever you find it at work. That, and, and it's a note to yourself. And ask yourself, how did you get to work today? Do you remember? And this is a very common phenomenon. Most people will not remember how they got to work any given day. Now, of course, you know that you drove or you know that you took the bus or you took a train. Everyone knows that they did that. But if you try to remember specific details of it, you'll find that you cannot. And you don't really have any evidence that that's how you did it. You just kind of take it on faith and know that you did because you did every day. You use inductive reasoning, basically, um, to, to ver validate this to yourself. So this is a good way of reminding yourself that most behavior really is mechanical and that if you want to really awaken in a real and meaningful way, not only is 
super efforts required, but something more is required. Intervention is required. Help from others is required. Input and interaction with those who have awakened before or who want to awake desperately as badly as you. So getting back to this cosmic garden hose and the idea that these droplets are falling around in different places. And we realize that there are people who are in the right place and they are able to receive. And that is awakened and prepared to receive. And they can begin to make efforts for attracting and receiving more in the future. We might spend most of our days in relative sleep, but through initiation and initiatory practices, we prepare ourselves to be ready at a moment's notice. We learn the signs and to sense the presence of the supersubstantial. We learn intuitively what sort of influences are coming into our life. We we learn to intuitively identify them as you know, worthless, deleterious, non-conscious, substantial, super substantial. And for the super substantial influences, you don't just gain a sense for those just by reading in a book about them either. You know, you gain a sense for what's substantial, but for what's super substantial. This only comes from direct experience right at the mouth of the source with exchange from others who are there at the source. And as a lot of people might have noticed, this whole process partakes of a very old pattern and a very similar concept, which was, of course, corrupted um, and is and is and is abused and misused in, in a variety of ways by the uh representatives of the of the right hand path which are really forces of 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 the druge they're forces of a pep but it goes back to the parable of the sower that you see in the synoptic gospels where the sower sows the word by the way of seeds and he talks about most of the seeds fall on the road the rocks are the thorns even if the word is heard, it is not received, but a small amount of the seeds fall on good soil. And these are those who hear and fully receive and something new can begin growing inside them. But the problem with the way um, it's been corrupted is that the word that we're referring to is essentially the word of obedience. It's the word of uh, restriction is what, Alistair Crowley liked to call it. Um, and it's the word of, of, of coercion and, and, and the slave mentality and being a follower and all these other things. But in any case, this is a reminder that what we're talking about here is a possibility really only for the few. It's not a possibility for, for the masses because it requires a convergence of right place, right time, and the right mind. Now, it's very possible that way back a long time ago, 
there was a time when, um, and, and this would be, you know, what I, I would call antediluvian, like before whatever great disaster uh, and, and, and rebooting of mankind took place in relation to uh, the flood, universal flood mythology out there or the universal Atlantis mythology. There, there may have been a time where, where human beings, where, where this, the, the right kind of nourishment for the full evolution of the human being and mind and soul complex happened naturally because the nourishment was available and, and, and it flowed freely. And, and maybe it was just natural that people went in this direction. But something happened, um, and in and, and the Airbeth transmissions, I talk about this in terms of a second intervention, a first intervention, which gave us um, you know, what we call the gift of set and the ability to um, extract this kind of nourishment and grow into uh, something really amazing. And then there's a second intervention associated with the flood where we received a restriction on this. And there's different ways of, of, that this is represented, that this restriction took place. Um, in the Diabolicon, it's talked about um, a, a, another war in, in heaven, a, an angelic and demonic war over uh, the future of mankind, and they talk talk about it in 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 terms of that. But there's also uh, the Gurdjieffian uh, system in Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson. He talks about Kunda Buffer, which is an organ that's installed in uh, the human genetic structure, which restricts our ability to see all of reality. So basically it restricts the energy flow coming into us so that uh, certain thing, aspects of it we're basically blind to. Um, and Wilhelm Reich talks about the exact same thing uh, in his study of, of character armor, which he speaks about in a number of his books, especially um, his major work, Function of the Orgasm. So... Unlike water from the earth, which is that's kind of the metaphor we're using with a uh, cosmic garden hose, the black flame contains certain essential qualities like substance, energy, and purposefulness. And there's an intention and purpose behind and within this stream. Impressions and substance that originates from a higher source. So this is where, when we return to the cosmic garden hose allegory, here's where we would begin to ask, who is the gardener? Who is it at the source? Who's holding the hose? Who's turning the faucet? <laughs> Who's de who decides which garden it's going to go on? Now, initially in ordinary life, we can find these droplets dispersed in various forms of impressions. Like I said before, examples like art, music, literature, or architecture, which seem to bear some higher frequency or purpose or a sense of the sacred. I like the Sphinx and the, and the pyramids are great examples. It's a complete mystery 
what these things are, how they got there, or what they mean, but we're pretty sure that it means something. I mean, people didn't just slap it together for the hell of it. And in most cases, if you study these things far enough, you'll find that such manifestations were themselves ultimately derived or created by previous generations of initiates working with higher ideas. So as we go about absorbing these various influences, certain events will conspire, often by means of shocks, initiatory shocks. And they create within us the right kind of open state to be able to receive these higher influences. These droplets congeal and remanifest within us, taking on a magnetic quality. Again, Gurdjieff talked about this in terms of magnetic center. And you can find references this, to this process in other lost systems like Tibetan Buddhism, where they claim that special new bones are formed in the bodies of saints as a result of their earthly initiation. Or in uh, Vedanta, where there's this idea of different bodies being developed within and through initiatory processes, bodies which then allow us to see and move in new ways. The point is, there's this idea that through this higher form of nourishment, something new actually grows within us as a result of it. And this is an idea that's just completely lost in all forms of monotheism out there today. And you find it in Zoroastrianism as well, the idea that essentially new bodies are created through a kind of um, nourishment. So the accumulation of the high-powered substance within our being over time eventually can grow to a certain point that it connects with the force that we call runa. And it becomes an attractor for yet more super substantial elements and experiences. It begins to lead us somewhere. Or perhaps something within us grows to the point that Runa begins to pull it in a certain direction. We find ourselves pulled into the orbit of something greater. And now this is all under the second function or the second thing that we do with the black flame is that we hold it and we integrate it in our being. And it starts to create these new things within us, new bodies and this magnetic quality. And initially, this magnetic draw can lead us to certain other people and individuals who share a common interest in those same apparent influences, art, music, literature, whatever. For a lot of us, this is initially starts out probably as occultism, but Occultism might lead to these other influences in there somewhere, but it can also lead um, not in that direction because of the sources behind it. Often the sources that come in through occultism are hijacked by essentially charlatans and, and, and false teachers. 
Nevertheless, this step along the way can be quite exhilarating as we make connections with others who share values that are not embraced by the mainstream. But if we continue in this manner, that is, continue to find opportunities to open ourselves up to receiving higher influences, we'll soon see that this is only an intermediary step. We'll see that there's more needed. Because ultimately, that magnetic pull, and this is how you know, that magnetic pull is drawing you toward the source which varying somewhat with time and place, it means an initiatory school or an esoteric circle of some sort. It means a place where ideas about personal psyche-centric evolution are studied. You know, for 21st century people in the West, this could mean the Temple of Set. In the past, it could have meant an ancient Egyptian priesthood or a Gnostic school the Pythagorean Academy, you know, the, the Sufis. And this is one reason why you see certain recurring ideas and patterns in these circles. For instance, there's like an idea of sacred guardianship with a clear indication that something substantial that requires guarding, guarding and, and, and cultivation and groups like this guard and cultivate a sacred fire it's a theme that occurs again and again. Really, the first place that I think you see this pattern is with the first Magus, Zarathustra, who established a tradition with a, a priesthood whose, whose primary function is to tend a fire that is never allowed to burn out. So this idea of a, of a source is like fully represented here amongst their traditions, right? It's like there's a source here on, on, on earth and that's maintained by um, the priesthood and their fire temple. And of course, it also is a representation of a cosmic source of fire, of, uh, which they call Athra. Mind you, Athra, cosmic fire. So... Talking about Zarathustra for a minute, there's fire temples that appear as central pillars to early communities way back a long time ago where Zoroastrian priests or Magi, as they called them, because this is where we get the term uh, Magus from, a Magi would tend the fire to ensure that it never died out. So in addition to the spiritual focus, the fire temple also served a practical function to the community, ensuring the valuable resource of fire is always available. So you have to imagine the arising of this in relationship to um, the past where they didn't have fire in a regular consumable way, um, that it would be an incredible claim of technological prowess for a community to be able to boast that they had kept their fire going without interruption for decades or perhaps centuries. And even today, there's fire temples in uh, India and in, in places in Iran 
where they claim to have fire that's thousands of years old because that, that one source of the fire has never been allowed to go out. So there's a, a, a similarity right there with um, where, where we are here in the West. We have this idea that there is a cosmic source of the black flame, which we call the black sun. That exists out there. But we also have this idea that the fire that we have, the manifestation of this fire, re-manifestation of that fire on earth is not permanent in the same way. That its existence here, its continuation here for humanity is dependent on people doing something to keep it alive. There's a line from the book of coming forth by night about this too that um that you know without uh the work of the elect the uh majesty will fade and be ended and it and it, and it occurs in the diabolicon as well but fire is is an interesting subject for the zoroastrians and and i think looking at how they talked about it would help us a lot to see how there's different manifestations of this right on up to that that cosmic one. So I'm just going to talk about some of them here. There's basically six kinds of fire. The first kind is called Vohu Frayan, or Good Propagator. Now, this is a kind of fire that's found within the bodies of humans and animals. It requires its own food and water and nourishment in order to be sustained. It may be understood as basically the life force energy. And in Setian terms, we might describe this with the Aeonic word arcte. It's a fire that binds man and animal together. It's like the fire... Um, of, of, of the living body. And then there's a, the second kind of fire is called Urvazisht, or most useful. And it's a kind of fire that's found in plants. So it's an energy or fire that requires water, but no food in order to be sustained. Urvazisht can manifest in carbon dioxide and oxygen. So when uh, I, I talked about the second kind of food from Gurdjieff's food diagram, this uh, would correspond with that. Urvazisht would correspond with the kind of food that is received through the breath of man. And Vohufrayan, which is in the bodies of humans and animals, this is, this is the food that organic life needs to survive. Plants don't take this food in the same kind of way. So on the third kind of fire is vazisht, or most supporting. And that's a fire that's found in clouds. It manifests as lightning. They say this energy or fire requires water and water food in order to be sustained and corresponds with the idea of the heavenly fire or something in the atmosphere. So this is the kind of fire that 
um, Tesla was working with. You know, this is the kind of fire that um, Ayn Rand was talking about in Atlas Shrugged, where they find the mysterious motor that harvests energy from the atmosphere to create a, a, a sort of renewable and inexhaustible energy supply for mankind. And then the fourth kind of fire is spanished, most brilliant and beneficent, such as that found in a flame, the temporal fires. This energy or fire requires food, fuel, but no water in order to be sustained. And this is the ordinary fire. I mean, like if I whipped out my lighter and I flicked my Bic, that is an instance of spanished, the fourth kind of fire. So these are all in, in the initial category. Uh, I consider these are, are, are types of substantial fire. And then you come across the more cosmic sorts of fire. There's two cosmic sorts or what I like to call super substantial fires. And this is the fifth one, Berezi Savang, which takes us back to the origins of the universe and the cosmic fire of original creation. So this is the fire from which the, the universe is created from. And then number six, and this is the most important, it's a special kind of spiritual fire called Mainyu Athra. And this is the fire that illuminates the path of Asha, or the way of truth. Mainyu Athra corresponds to the highest frequency of fire. We call it black flame. Or, or Beelzebub in Beelzebub's tales, we call it most, most holy fire absolute. And in ordinary life, we experience these first four manifestations of fire in different times and places. These are kind of like natural fire. But this, the two uh, latter kinds, five and six, these are like the holy fire. They're infrequent. We don't encounter them every day in life, only in very unique conditions. But you, when you find one of these places where the sacred fire is kept and tended, when you find something that represents the source, then you have an opportunity to experience its full force. So many people experience this in the Temple of Set. So in one sense, the Temple of Set is a place where the black flame is intentionally accumulated, gathered, and cultivated. Well, we've talked a lot about how we receive and hold and integrate the black flame. Next time, we'll talk about how we expel it, how we send it send it back out, like the kind of the end game of this. Um, not really the end game, but a part of the process that needs to occur with it for everything to be complete. So we can go on to achieve our own individual end game, which is tied up in the, uh, very much tied up and represented in the Setian word, uh, kefir, and the Setian admonition of Kefir and Remanifest. So we'll talk more about that next time. So 
I want to thank you all, friends and fellow Damons, for joining me here again. If you enjoy this podcast, please like, comment, and subscribe. We're available on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Patreon. So check us out. And always, always, always keep that dark fire burning.